On Sunday mornings, we're doing a series in the Gospel of Mark, and the title for this morning's message is A Prophet Without Honor. And our passage is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So let's read through our passage, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to take a few minutes to walk through the story, and then I've got four applications for us at the end. So let's read through this. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And I always preach and teach from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that these aren't just stories from thousands of years ago, but that they're absolutely relevant for today. Speak to us through the story, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that, that we wouldn't be a Nazareth, God, but that we would be a Bethany. We'd be a house of friends. And that the opposition that you experience in your hometown, that that would not be true of our lives or of our church, but that, Lord, you would know that you're welcome here and that we love you. And so, Jesus, speak to us now through your word. Give us open hearts and open minds in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's walk through this story. So verse 1, it says, And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. So just to put this in context, what's been happening is Jesus has been teaching by the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee was about 500 feet below sea level. And he's in Capernaum, he's leaving the Sea of Galilee, and he's going up into the hills to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And he's going to walk by foot 25 miles away to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was an absolute nowhere place. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned by Josephus. It's not in the Mishnah or the Talmud. And not only was it a nowhere place, but it had a bad reputation. It was kind of the Jersey City of the ancient world. Amen? <laughs> Can I get an amen, New Yorkers? No, just kidding. That's why when Philip comes to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, he's all excited he's about Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Jersey City? No, nothing good. Can... <laughs> Nazareth was a tiny village of about 500 people spread over 60 acres, and it was carved into a hillside looking out over the Jezreel Valley. And if you're a Bible nerd, the Jezreel Valley is actually where the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen. I've been right there with the Battle of Armageddon. I took a selfie in the Valley of Armageddon. So, so when the end of the world comes, I can tell you what it was like. You know? So it's on a hillside looking over the Jezreel Valley. And in the Jezreel Valley was a road called the Via Maris. And the Via Maris was this trade route that went from Egypt to the city of Damascus. And so that was the world that Jesus grew up in. Nazareth was also in Galilee, and Galilee was a heavily Gentile area, and so Jesus was very familiar with Gentiles. He grew up with, around a lot of non-Jews, and I've actually been to Nazareth, and, and modern Nazareth is actually kind of a letdown. It's not really that interesting of a place. There's a terrible shopping mall in Nazareth, this tacky shopping mall, and 
It's actually today, it's, um, it's in the Palestinian territories and it's actually a predominantly Muslim city, but it's not really, you know, if you go there, there's not really much to see. I had a really good falafel there. Can I get an amen? So <laughs> I, had, I had some good lamb kebab, but that, that's about it. So, but when Jesus comes into his hometown, he's coming in as a rabbi with his retinue of disciples, okay? Verse two, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So on the Sabbath, Jesus goes in to the synagogue in Nazareth. This is probably the synagogue he grew up in. And in Jesus' day, synagogues didn't have an established rabbi. And so they would just kind of, you know, invite somebody from the audience to come up to share. They've probably heard about all the things that Jesus is doing. He's kind of a rock star. He's in church that day. He's sitting in the front row. He's singing all the songs with his hand raised. And they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't you come up and share a word? And when Jesus gets up and begins to teach, they're taken back by it. They're astonished. And as we'll see in a minute, oddly, they're actually offended by Jesus. And you can see it in the way they ask their questions. They say, where did this man get these things? Now, they know Jesus. They grew up with him. This is his hometown, but they call him this man. It's almost a New York expression when you go, this guy. You know, that's what they're saying. Like if I'm upset at Solomon, I go, this guy right here. You know what I mean? That's what they're saying. They're saying, who gave this man all these things? And they ask three questions that are actually very profound that we're going to look at at the end of the message. They ask, where did he get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And so they're taken back because Jesus did not go and study under one of the great rabbis. He didn't go to one of the yeshiva schools in Jerusalem. He's just a carpenter. And they're all kind of stunned because Jesus gets up and hits this like home run sermon. And they're all kind of taken back by it. And they're thinking, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter? We thought Jesus was a construction worker. Where did he get all this wisdom? Where did he get all this insight? Now, the word for carpenter, carpenter here is actually the Greek word technon. And it's where we get our word technology from. And a technon was actually more than a carpenter. It's really a builder. And so Jesus would have been a carpenter. He would have been a stonemason. He would have been a metalsmith. And Jesus would have known how to build just about anything. He could have built a house, he could have built a plow, he could have built yoke for oxen, he could build stools and benches and metal tools. And honestly, probably what Jesus was in Nazareth is he was the village handyman. He was the guy who could fix anything. He was like a mobile Home Depot. Can I get an amen on that? All the men out there, anybody, well, women too. Anyone, can we get an amen for Home Depot? I love Home Depot, all right? So I, I walk in there, my masculinity just rises as I walk in. So he was like a mobile Home Depot, and he could fix anything, he could do anything. By this point in the story, Joseph is probably dead, and so as the oldest son, he was responsible to take care of his family, and he was probably providing for his family by being a technon, by being a builder, by being a kind of handyman or construction worker. But there's something interesting to notice about what they call Jesus, and it's a little thing that would be easy to pass over if, if you didn't really know the context. They call Jesus the son of Mary. Now, Jesus lived in what was called a patronymic culture, and in a patronymic culture, you're named after your father. Your father's name becomes your last name. In Aramaic, bar means son of. 
So Peter's real name, Peter was a nickname that Jesus gave him, but Peter's real name was Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon's son of Jonah. My dad's name is John, and so if I lived in the first century, my name would be, instead of Mike Doyle, it would be Mike, son of John. Everybody was named after their father. So to call Jesus the son of Mary was actually a diss. And probably what it's pointing back to was the mystery surrounding the birth of Jesus. And I bet Jesus' whole life, there was a sense of illegitimacy about his birth because Mary tells everybody, no, God made me pregnant. <laughs> God formed a baby inside of me. And who really actually believed that? I mean, that's actually what did happen. But I, there, might, there probably were a lot of people in that village that never really bought the story of the virgin birth. And so one thing to think about with Jesus, his whole life, I think he grew up under the shadow of his birth. And so what they're doing, because they're offended by Jesus, they're hurt by Jesus, they actually kind of pull this out of their tool bag of insult, and they call him the son of Mary to try to knock him down to size, to try to take a shot at him. And Mary had more children after Jesus. Jesus had four brothers. His young, the, the next in line brother, his, his kind of right behind him was James. James would go on to be a leader in the early church. He was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. And James was actually martyred in 62 AD. And the way they martyred James, it's actually, it's pretty horrific, is they took James, they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple. That didn't kill him. So then they stoned him. That didn't kill him. And then so a guy walked up with a club and clubbed him to death. That's how James died, all right? He had another brother named Joseph, another brother named Judas, not the Judas who, not the Judas who betrayed him. Judas was a common name in, in Jesus' world. A brother named Simon. And he had two sisters that we don't really know anything about. They're mentioned early on in the Gospels, and then you never hear about them again throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so some Bible scholars think maybe the reason why you don't hear about them again is because they never became Christians. But they take offense at Jesus. And I think what's happening here is in Australia and New Zealand, they have a thing called tall poppy syndrome. Has anybody ever heard of tall poppy syndrome? Okay, nobody's heard of tall poppy syndrome. Well, tall poppy syndrome is in Australia, you can be famous and successful but you can't be too famous or too successful. And what happens is, in Australian culture and even in New Zealand culture, if somebody gets too famous or, or too successful, then everybody in that culture begins to criticize you, and they try to knock you down to size. And that's what I think is happening here with Jesus. They're sitting there going, Jesus gets up, he's super famous, preaches this amazing sermon, God's working through him, and they're all sitting in the audience going, well, who does he think he is? Where did he get all this from? He's the carpenter. He's the local boy. Now he's a rock star. Now he's got all this wisdom. And ironically, they're actually offended by him, that they're, they're resentful of him. And instead of trying to figure out what is God doing in the life of Jesus, they just get angry at him. And then it says in verses four through six, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. And so there's four applications I want to draw out for all of us from this story. And I really want you to listen to these applications, especially the second one, because I think it's really profound. The first thing we see is that Jesus experienced rejection for the mission of God, and so will we. Jesus modeled for us a spirit-filled life. Jesus is hindered by an atmosphere of unbelief, and Jesus is still a builder. So the first application is Jesus experienced rejection for the mission of God, and so will we. So Jesus' ministry has begun, 
He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching about the kingdom of God. His fame is spreading everywhere. And then he goes back to his hometown. He goes back to his relatives. He goes back to his family. And if you, and if you think, if anybody would have accepted Jesus, it would have been them. But what do they do? They reject Jesus. They're offended by him. When he was just a quiet local carpenter, they were fine with him. But now that God is using him in a powerful way, they're resentful of him. But I believe this story is actually here to encourage us and to help us. Because I want to tell you something, and give me your attention. After you're done opening your wallet, is, um, is we, I love Elkrow, by the way, is um, if you're going to follow Jesus, I want to tell you something, and it's a hard truth, and it was, it was a very hard truth for me when I first became a Christian. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to experience rejection for the Christian faith. And honestly, that's hard. If you're the rare person that likes rejection, come talk to me afterwards, okay? So it's like nobody likes rejection. You know, when I first became a Christian, I actually experienced what Jesus did. My whole family rejected me. My mom, my dad, and my two brothers all rejected me. And it took years for my family to come around. And now today, you know, we're very close and they're very supportive of me. But that was a really hard thing for me to have to deal with was the rejection of my family for giving my life to Jesus. And before I became a Christian, I was like a drug addict. And so it was almost like they, they liked drug addict Mike better than they liked born-again Christian Mike. Does anyone understand that? And my family rejected me. But you know what? I was so in love with Jesus, and I was so excited to follow him that I, I just realized that was part of the price of following him. And what's going to happen is, as our culture, and I talk about this a lot, as our culture becomes more, more secular and more post-Christian, there's just going to be a lot more rejection of the church and of Christians and of the Christian faith and what's ironic about that is we live in a culture today that values acceptance and inclusion except when it comes to Christians and Christian morality in the church. But Jesus experienced this rejection too. And by the people that should have accepted him the most, his hometown, his friends, his relatives, his very own family. And the thing to realize too is that Jesus loved people. Jesus was not a contrarian. You know, he wasn't a radio talk show host. He wasn't looking for a fight. Jesus liked people. He loved people. And so to be rejected by the people that were the closest to him must have been deeply painful for Jesus. But that's just part of what it means to follow God's will for our lives. It's part of the cost of discipleship is sometimes we're gonna experience rejection for following Jesus. And it's just part of the price of following him. And I wanna tell you something, listen to this. We have to be okay with that and not take it personal. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. They're not rejecting you actually, they're rejecting Jesus. And it's not even as much that they're rejecting Jesus as they're rejecting God himself. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he says, whoever listens to you listens to me. And look at what he says here. Read this actually with me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. You know, we assume that everybody loved Jesus. You know, that's kind of the thing in our culture today. Like whenever someone wins a Grammy, I want to give a shout out to Jesus. You know, it's like... Like, we just, we just automatically assume, like, everybody loved Jesus. And then there was a thing, it's not so much anymore, as think about 10 years ago, like, we love Jesus, we hate the church. No, they hated Jesus too. <laughs> People hated Jesus. And I know that sounds harsh or radical, but you're like, where does it say that? I got, look at, this is Jesus, John chapter 15, verses 16 through 27. If the world hates you, keep in mind what that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would, what? It would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. 
Do you see that, Christian? It's not about you. Don't take it personal. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus was a stranger in this world, and so we are strangers in this world as well. And secondly, and this is my longest point, if you like symmetry, this throws off the symmetry of my sermon, amen? So it'd be like a body with a big bulge in it right here. You know, it's, like, it's like this big extra point, right? Jesus modeled for us the spirit-filled life. I believe in a thing that's called the kenosis theory about Christ. And the word kenosis is a Greek word that means to empty out. And it comes from what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter two, which we're gonna look at in just a moment. But I want you to hear this. Give me your attention. I believe that when Jesus came in the world, he never stopped being divine, but he did lay aside his divine attributes. In theology, what are called his omni-attributes. So when Jesus became a human being, he laid aside his ability to be omniscient, to know everything. So in the story of the woman with the issue of blood touching Jesus' garment, when Jesus turns around the crowd and says, who touched me? Like, he legitimately didn't know who touched him. He laid aside his omnipotence, his ability to be all-powerful. When Jesus got hungry, he really got hungry. When he got tired, he was genuinely tired. When he was weary, he was really weary. When he was crucified, he really died. And when you cut him, he really bled. And he laid aside his omnipresence, his ability to be everywhere at one time. Jesus allowed himself to be limited to one geographical location at a time. And why did Jesus do this? Why did he lay aside all his divine attributes? I believe so that he could be fully human like you and I, to experience the same struggles and the same limitations that you and I do. He didn't use any of his divine abilities to make life easier for himself, all right? He didn't get on the seven train and go, make it an express. You know, it's like, <laughs> he's like, he didn't do that. Like, he, he suffered like we do. He got tired like we do. He got disappointed like we do. He had his heart broken like we do. He was 100% human just like we were. And even though he was divine, he never took advantage of those divine resources to try to like make life easier for himself because he wanted to know fully and completely what it was like to be a human being. And Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter two. I'm not gonna read the whole passage because it's long, but I just wanna show you one part of it. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, kenosis, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so here's how it applies to you, okay? You're like, Mike, that's interesting, but what does that mean for me? Here's how it applies to you, okay? I wanna tell you something that I think is radical but powerful is that I believe that all the miracles that Jesus did, all of his divine insight and teaching, all the miracles he worked with his hands, he actually did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that what Jesus was showing us in the Gospels is what's possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. He was modeling the Christian life for us, and he was modeling the Spirit-filled life for us, and I believe he was showing us actually what's capable. And I think, honestly, that we can do all the things that Jesus did, and not only the things that Jesus did, but even greater things. You say, Mike, where does it say that? All right, John chapter 14, verse 12. This is Jesus. Look at what he says. John 14, up there, four twelve. <laughs> truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And 
Greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. Really, Pastor Mike, what about raising people from the dead? Yeah. The Apostle Paul raised somebody from the dead. Paul was giving this Bible study. You think I'm boring? Paul was so boring, a guy fell asleep, <laughs> fell out of a window, died. I've never had that happen to me, amen? Like, I've made people, you know, jump to Instagram, but I've never killed anybody, amen? So <laughs> this guy dies, and Paul raises him from the dead. He did what Jesus did. I believe that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, stay with me, okay? This, I think this point will revolutionize your life. I believe that when Jesus, was baptized by the Holy, when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in the form of the dove, he was actually baptized in the Holy Spirit, just like the disciples were at Pentecost. And that and that, that was actually when Jesus' ministry began, when he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I believe that all the supernatural things that Jesus did, he was doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that leads us back to those three questions they asked. Remember, and I told you to put them on hold. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The answer is the Holy Spirit. How are mighty works done by his hands? How did he cast out demons and heal the sick? How did he get all that wisdom and revelation and insight from the Holy Spirit? In fact, in Ephesians 1.17, the apostle Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, I, I think I have a verse for this. Prophesying about Jesus, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. What? The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And here's the really good news, and here's how it applies directly to you. We have access to the exact same Holy Spirit. Do you want divine insight? Do you want a deeper revelation of the things of God? Do you want supernatural wisdom? That's been one of my personal prayers over the last three months is I'm like, God, give me extreme wisdom. Do we want to do even greater things than Jesus? Then open yourself to the Holy Spirit. Be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Holy Spirit. Be led by the Holy Spirit. Obey the Holy Spirit. Have a tender heart and be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Spend time with the Lord in the secret place so that the Holy Spirit can speak to you through his still small voice. And I find this so encouraging because we don't have to be the smartest person in the world. We don't have to be the wisest person in the world. We don't have to have a genius IQ. We don't have to have an Ivy League education, though that would be nice, amen? <laughs> Solomon actually has an Ivy League education. He went to Cornell. Can we give Solomon a round of applause? Come on. He's still available, ladies. The window's closing, but you know, he's still out. He really loves his mom. He's got a great job. He's got a good credit score. So, um... <laughs> He's definitely above 800. So we just, have, we just have to be filled and receptive to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit can give us divine insight, divine wisdom, divine direction, divine revelation to the knowledge of Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus was a blue-collar worker. He was a handyman from a nowhere town. He was not a student of any of the great rabbis in Jerusalem, but yet when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he became, by the Holy Spirit, the wisest most profound, most world-changing person that ever lived. And if he did it for Jesus, 
he can do it for us as well. Isn't that incredibly encouraging? Thirdly, Jesus is hindered by an atmosphere of unbelief. The only time in Mark it says that Jesus marveled was at the unbelief he experienced in his hometown. This was so shocking to Jesus. See, because for Jesus, for Jesus, the reality of God was so obvious. It was so evident. And the things that God was doing through Jesus were so amazing and so spectacular that I think Jesus was really like, really, you can't believe? Like, look at what God is doing. Like, the blind are seeing, the, the, the demon-possessed are being delivered, and you, and you don't believe? What's ironic is the demon-possessed Gentile has more faith in Jesus than the people who knew him his whole life. But in some way that I don't fully understand, and I want you to hear this, and I've got one last point, and then we're going to conclude this service. Unbelief hinders the ability of Jesus to move in power. You say, well, Mike, well, how does that square with the sovereignty of God? I got no idea, okay? The same was true in Jesus' world, and the same is true of our world. And by, this, by the way, this is Roth behind me. Can we give Roth a round of applause for coming up and playing guitar? I asked him to do this. He probably didn't want to do it, but he's coming out to play with me as I, as I conclude this message. But Mark 13, 58, writing about the same story, says, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Listen, faith opens the door for God to come and move in power. Jesus said in Mark 20, 9, 23, that all things are possible to him who believes. But doubt and unbelief and cynicism and skepticism and a critical, critical spirit hinders the Holy Spirit and hinders his ability to come and do supernatural things. We don't want to be a Nazareth at movement, amen? Look at these quotes. I've got four quotes, and then I'm gonna, I got one last point, and then I'll be done. Donald English writes, the atmosphere of faith is an essential part of the kingdom being established. The presence of Jesus will not produce miracles, and the atmosphere of total unbelief and resistance. Ben Witherington, lack of faith limits the reception of help readily available from Jesus. William Barclay, I love this one because I'm a preacher. I love what he says. There can be no preaching in the wrong atmosphere. Our churches would be different places if congregations would only remember that they preach more than half the sermon. In an atmosphere of expectancy, the poorest effort can catch fire. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> In an atmosphere of critical coldness or bland indifference, the most spirit-packed utterance can fall lifeless to the earth. And I have, man, I have experienced that so many times. And then William Barclay, there is laid on us a tremendous responsibility that we can either help or hinder the work of Jesus Christ. We can open the door wide to him, or we can slam it in his face. And you know, unbelief becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we sit on the sidelines and go, oh, God can't do that, you know what? Yeah, he won't do that. If we sit on the sidelines and go, oh, revival's never gonna come, yeah, you know what? Revival will never come. I would rather be a fool for Jesus and believe that God can do anything than to sit on the sidelines and be a skeptic and never see God move. But just as an atmosphere of unbelief hinders Jesus, Atmospheres of belief create space for Jesus to move. And that was the upper room on the day of Pentecost. It was a prayerful environment. It was an expectant environment. It was a faith-filled environment. It was a loving environment. It was a grace, gracious environment. It was a free environment. And it was into that atmosphere 
that the Holy Spirit was able to come and move in incredible power. And that's what I want our church to be. I want our church to be an atmosphere of belief, an atmosphere of faith, a place of openness and expectancy, that we come prayed up, we come with hearts filled with faith, expectant to see what that new thing is God's gonna do Sunday after Sunday. Because it's in those atmospheres, those environments that God moves in power. And here's my last and final point. Jesus is still a builder. Through Jesus, God takes the raw materials of our lives and like a master carpenter, Jesus makes us into something beautiful. He smooths off our rough edges. He heals all the broken places. He fixes the Ikea chips and he shapes us and molds us into works of art. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the word for workmanship is the Greek word poema. It's where we get our word poem from. And we are Jesus' poem. We're his masterpiece. And like a spiritual stonemason, we are living stones that Jesus is shaping and forming and building into a living temple that he fills with himself. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. He says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is still building today. He's building his church all over the world, and he's still taking broken lives and building them into something beautiful. He's still a builder. Amen, church? Come on, let's all stand to our feet. Everybody stand up. And what we're going to do is we're going to close the two last worship songs. These are response songs. And I want to challenge all of us as we've seen these last two songs. Come on, let, let's lean in. Let's press in this morning. If we feel like maybe we've become a Nazareth in our heart, let's ask God that, that God will change our hearts, that he'll give us a fresh heart, a believing heart. If we feel dry, if we feel weary, if the fire in us has grown cold, let's ask Jesus to light a fresh fire in us this morning. You know, I've been sharing it all morning. It says in Leviticus 16 that the, that the fire was never to go out on the altar. So let's ask in these final moments together as we sing these last two songs that God would light a fresh fire in our heart, that he would do a fresh new work in us this morning. We don't want to be a Nazareth. We want to be a Bethany. We want to be a house of friends. And we want to say, Jesus, you're welcome here. We believe in you. And history has proven that Jesus was, in fact, the son of God. His hometown got it wrong, but history proved him right. So, Jesus, we worship you in this place. Holy Spirit, come and move in these final moments together. Lord, work in everybody's lives in this room in these final moments, Jesus. We love you. We believe in you. And we'd rather be fools for you than cynics on the sidelines. In Jesus' name.